I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. I still remember how hideously pathetic the fish looked. I couldn't unsee them. They appeared to be in such a plight. Spawning carp, terribly belabored in their upstream struggle, or perilously stymied, or dead. I think nearly half of them actually were already goners. The river bottom and the banks were so choked by them, the current so low, that their bodies were only partially submerged. Many of them were stranded on stones, heaving slowly now and then in sheer futility, their fins splayed out wide. Salmon spawn and die, you know, that's their natural way. Carp aren't supposed to do that, and I won't even try to convey the smell. I'm taking you back here to something I saw in the mid-1980s. I was still a college kid in the city of Provo, Utah. I had just barely discovered that there even was a river that ran through town. And what's more, not once in my undergraduate days had I come within a mile of the vast but shallow lake that the river empties into, Utah Lake. Never even got close to it. People had told me, there's really nothing down there, don't bother. The short story about these carp is that something about nature had gone really haywire. Well, several things had gone haywire. For starters, the carp, I would learn, were from Asia, not at all native. They wouldn't have been gruesomely dying here in the first place if their ancestors hadn't been brought from overseas. So successfully had they reproduced that now there were simply too many of them for the Provo River and for Utah Lake, for that matter. But this carp mess isn't even half of our big story. Maybe you're wondering, just how much gore does Marcus really want to dwell on here? Well, I can promise you, there's good news in this episode of Constant Wonder. Very good news indeed. We routinely call this podcast a quest, the holy grail being awe or wonder. And as I take you now along with me to Utah Lake, you'll sense multiple strands of awe, from the remarkable rescue of an endangered species that these carp nearly killed off, that's a fish called the June Sucker, to the restoration of a severely compromised freshwater lake, to the excitement members of local communities have discovered for the diversity of native life in these marshes and wetlands, an ecosystem worth saving. This episode is a multifaceted account because Utah Lake is a multifaceted place and the awe will emerge for the reasons I've just mentioned and in the voices of our several guests. When you've got a boat as slow as ours, it's hard to get from one end to the other end in one day. It is 150 square miles, so huge in surface area. Uh, what's unique about the lake, in addition to being so large and natural, is that it's also really shallow. So the average depth of Utah Lake is about eight or nine feet. 150 square miles, or 95,000 acres, your preference. 
It's simply one of the largest freshwater lakes west of the Mississippi. For Josh Lamont, a geology professor at Brigham Young University, when he was taking sediment samples one lovely fall day last year, the lake was way too big. My wife was about nine months pregnant, and we were on the south end of the lake. And I get a phone call from my wife, and the first thing she says is, don't panic, I'm okay. And I was like, okay, what, what are you going to tell me here? <laughs> and she said, well, I just met with the doctor, and I have to go to the hospital to do some additional tests. Something's not right with the baby. And I thought, oh my goodness, okay, well, it's going to take us an hour and a half to get back to the marina from where we were. And that's not even as far as you could be in the lake. And that day, the lake felt very, very big to me. <laughs> Eventually, we did get back, got to the hospital, and luckily, everything was okay. But certainly, that added some expediency and some, like, <laughs> real emotion to how big the lake can feel. Josh Lamont talking to a few of us from the Constant Wonder team. He graciously took us out on Utah Lake in his research boat as we were first dipping our toes into this whole matter. Utah Lake is so big, people flying into Salt Lake International from the south sometimes mistake it for the Great Salt Lake. But Utah Lake, unlike its briny neighbor to the north, is home to fish, tons of fish. Before Europeans arrived and before the carp, 13 species of native fish flourished here, and their presence was no secret to indigenous peoples. The fish were indispensable. One archaeologist has described the marshlands on the east side as having been a prehistoric grocery store for those early peoples. Fishing villages lined the banks of the Provo River near its delta. Every year, in late spring, spawning fish would come upstream from the lake. This was a time of intense industry for hundreds of people as fish were hung on racks to dry against eventual winter, a rhythm of life. Enter European settlers who took an even more aggressive and ultimately unsustainable approach toward this vast and gracious food resource, Josh Lamont describes one of the first major challenges that these newcomers posed for the lake's well-being, among which settlers were the covered wagon pioneers of the Great Mormon Exodus. The lake served as a lifeblood and really saved some of the early pioneers when they first settled here in Utah Valley and Utah more generally. Um, in part, that's because of the great fishery that this was. Being able to survive through the winter on the fish in Utah Lake saved the pioneers. As a way to improve or enhance the amount of fish that they could get out, at some point they thought it was a good idea to introduce the Asian carp, which has been one of the largest problems with the lake ever since. Carp outcompete every endemic species. They churn up the bottom sediment. They also Take your average carp. The way it eats is a bit like a gluttonous pig rooting in the mud. 
It rubs its body along the lake bed, tears up everything growing there, sucks in mouth after mouth full of muddy water, holding whatever plant material it has captured against the roof of its mouth to extract everything it can use, discarding the rest. And with enough of these scaly, voracious pigs in action in the wrong environment, the carp have just completely changed the lake bed. And there's just huge numbers of them. Which brings us now to the June sucker, a native fish, one of the many species that fed native peoples and early settlers alike. It's important to note here that the June sucker lives only in Utah Lake, nowhere else in the world. Let's go back to that lake bed vegetation. June suckers need it to hide in while growing to adulthood. But the carp are busy vacuuming it all up, mowing it all down. But lest we single out carp as the only culprit that has taken a heavy toll on this ecosystem, in World War II, the federal government commissioned a steel mill on the banks of Utah Lake. That smelter's slag was pretty merciless on water quality. And another offender, agriculture. Farming and ranching near the marshy margins of the lake with their effluents from cattle and chemical fertilizers. All of this increased levels of nitrogen in the water, leading to algal blooms. These algal blooms have also been exacerbated by warming summer temperatures of the last several years. And though I hate to mention it in polite company... I probably need to list raw sewage here, injected into the lake until the 1950s. So a big picture comes together here. An ecosystem that once fed native peoples and settlers could no longer live and breathe the way it once did. In a way, the story of Utah Lake is the story of a paradise lost, But as I hinted earlier, it's also a story of rebirth. Recent decades have seen governmental agencies, local landowners, and just plain average citizens working to revitalize the dynamic natural systems of the lake. What we're seeing today is a steady, concerted, and successful remediation not only giving a shot in the arm to regional flora and fauna, but also bringing enhanced opportunities of enjoyment for us humans. I told you there'd be good news. With the right information, you get to see it as a special place. There isn't a body of water exactly like it anywhere else in the United States. What's unique about this lake is that it's a remnant of Lake Bonneville. And Lake Bonneville was here during the Pleistocene when it was cooler and wetter in this area. You know, we're talking 20,000-ish years ago when if we were where we are today, we'd be covered in about 100 feet of water. Lake Bonneville was 325 miles long from end to end. As the crow flies, that's about the distance from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I probably said that too quickly. From San Francisco to Los Angeles. If you ever find yourself in one of the several connected valleys where Lake Bonneville used to be, you can look at the foothills along the mountainous periphery and still see an ancient shoreline there, a geological bench that runs horizontally at about 5,000 feet elevation. Josh Lamont again. 
And Lake Bonneville was massive, this huge inland sea. Yeah, yeah. The story I hear, and you can tell me if I'm remembering this right, is that at some point it all drained out to the north and, and cut down where the Snake River is up in Idaho. Is that, does that sound right? So it's really a cool history. The Snake River meanders across southern Idaho and out towards the Columbia River. And it was diverted many, many years ago. I think it's around 30,000 years ago. There was a active volcano. And that volcanism is what led to uh, the water being diverted and then gathering here in what was Lake Bonneville. And so it covered here in Utah Valley, the Great Salt Lake, the dry, severe lake, and extended out into Nevada, just this huge interior sea. So Lake Bonneville hung around for a while, but then eventually the natural dam that allowed it to form failed. And that's when we had this massive flooding that occurred along the Snake River and cut some of those deep canyons in the Snake River Plain now that you see. If you go up to Twin Falls in that area, there's some really cool geologic features. You see big boulders seemingly in the middle of nowhere. And it was because all of that water from Lake Bonneville broke through that natural dam and then pushed with immense force out towards the sea. Eventually it dropped to the point where the water no longer flowed out and the climate grew warmer, it grew drier, and lake levels diminished. And eventually that's where we end up now with the remnants of Lake Bonneville, which include Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake. All of that geology is ancient history. But Josh was keen to point out that geologic change is something you can watch here almost in real time. For instance, at a place out in the lake five miles from Provo named Bird Island. Bird Island's a really interesting geologic aspect of the lake. So along the lake bed, there are several springs, natural springs. So you think about the water coming into the lake as just that from the rivers, but actually there are lots of springs that are coming in and bringing groundwater into the lake. And down at Bird Island, that's actually a geologic formation called a tufa, where the spring water comes into the lake and its chemistry is so different than that of the lake that it actually causes rock to form. And so those rock formations, or tufa, are what created Bird Island. There are other instances of this phenomenon along the lake shores as well. Mineral springs contain minerals, you know. They drop out, they settle down, and create those rocks. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's cool because you can see it happening, right? We think about geologic time, that it's slow and you can't see it. But the truth is, you can see it all around you. Ecological restoration, or at least remediation, to fix problems that the lake has faced in modern times, well, that all hinges on the human care and affection the lake receives. And we're going to talk about that in just a bit. 
First, I want to spend some time with you considering why and where and how that affection might arise in the first place. Utah Lake has held a special spot for Josh Lamont ever since he was a college kid at BYU back in the mid-2000s. I first grew to appreciate it when I was an undergrad, and I was stressed, and I wanted to get away from campus. Neither of my parents went to college, and so they couldn't help me, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and I was broke, and I was like, I'm going to quit because this is hard, and I don't know how to get out of it. But I remember coming down to the shores of Utah Lake and just sitting down in the bulrush and the other wetland plants and just listening to the birds, listening to the water lap, and letting that reset my body and my soul, in a way, to a more natural cadence, something that was slower, that brought me down, that helped me see the forest for the trees. Lack of a better metaphor. (laughs) Not many trees around here (laughs) where we are at the moment. This is a whole new perspective. I've I've never seen the valley from the middle of the lake. I've never been on the lake, actually. After living here for four decades. Yeah. (laughs) Never been on the lake. Man. That's shameful. Well, and it's not uncommon, though. So many people that live in Utah Valley have never been on Utah Lake. In large measure because it has a murky reputation. A reputation for being literally murky. I know this personally because that's how everyone described it to me when I first moved to Utah from California. Don't bother going there, they would say. Well, apparently a lot of people thought it should be deep and crystal clear, an alpine lake like something you'd see in Glacier National Park. Utah Lake is a basin-bottom lake, which means that it is within this interior basin, and this water comes here, eventually ends up in the Great Salt Lake, and that's its terminal location. The water's not going anywhere other than evaporating from that point. In fact, about 60% of the water that enters Utah Lake is lost to evaporation. It's just like when you boil some water, right? If you've ever boiled water or you've left your pot boiling and you forget about it and then eventually you come back and you say, wasn't there water in this pot? And there's some salts in there, right? You see that white ring and that's the salt that was in your water. You didn't see it in the water, but it was there. And now that the water's gone, those solutes, those things that were dissolved are left behind. And so Utah Lake, we see that happening here every single day where water comes in through the many different tributaries and gets deposited and then more evaporates. And so as the water evaporates from the lake, it leaves behind some of those solutes. And so those solutes, in addition to the ones that are just coming in through the sediment that's coming from the rivers, those all add minerals to the lake. And this lake is very mineral rich. And those things are what contribute to some of the murkiness here. Even if Asian carp had never been introduced, Utah Lake would still have a soft, silty bed. It's a dark lake. You can't see the bottom, even though it's super shallow. 
And if you fall in, in a spot that's not over your head, when you come up again, you'll find yourself standing in several inches of soft, squishy mud. Your feet rarely touch anything firm at all. We met a few people at the lake one morning, and we talked to them about the lake's reputation. Here's Fian Hoffman. When you ask, like, the average Utah person, they don't really have a great perception of Utah Lake. They kind of think that it's dirty or the algal blooms are a problem. And I think that's kind of sad because I was maybe in that place at one point. You see, I'm not alone. You have a public that wants Utah Lake to be Lake Tahoe. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it never has been and never will be. It is its own system. Does this place have a character? I mean, Utah Lake is moody. I would definitely say that. Are you just being figurative? No, I mean, it can look very moody out here. Even from where you may sit in Provo, you look out on this water, you can see the storms moving in, right? When you're out here on the water, it certainly feels moody because a little bit of wind can change it on a dime. You can go from glass-like waters to something that's really choppy and lapping up and making you a little nervous in no time. And I wonder, you know, is it just inherently moody or is it a little bit moody because of how we've treated it, right? Or maybe it's not getting what it needs. You think like my toddler, if they're hungry or thirsty or tired, then they're exceptionally moody, right? So how can I or how can we as the society that utilizes this great resource, try to provide for this resource that's providing for us. In just a moment, more on that species I mentioned called the June sucker. This native fish exists only in Utah Lake and was very nearly driven to extinction after the carp were introduced. The race against time to save the June sucker has led to a radical riparian restoration effort near the very same spot that turned my stomach way back in the 80s when I witnessed what seemed to me like thousands of carp plugging the Provo River. As you'll see, concern for this single endangered species has sent welcome ripple effects out into the entire ecosystem with implications for what this place is going to be in the future. We're about to find out what things look like when people start answering that call Josh Lamont described to give back to the lake what it needs. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Growing up, I really didn't even know anything about it, but it's really become very dear to my heart. I've, I've spent a lot of my career working with this, this fish, um, it's only found in Utah Lake. It's the only place in the world where it occurs naturally. Michael Mills is executive director at the Utah Reclamation Mitigation and Conservation Commission. Like the June sucker, Mills is native to Utah. The reason it's called a sucker is its mouth is typical of other species of sucker fish. But the June sucker, instead of having a mouth that's down underneath its chin, its mouth is clear up on the end of its face, kind of where its nose would be more like a trout. And that's because we've observed this feeding behavior where they're not 
out sucking things off the bottom of the lake. They actually feed up in the water column and are more of a filter feeder. So if the fish isn't a typical sucker, uh, what can you tell us about the June part? Historically, during the month of June, the adults would swim up the Provo River, and it was a pretty dramatic event because you would have tens of thousands of June suckers coming out of Utah Lake and swimming upstream through the Provo River. There's all kinds of descriptions, and these are fairly common in the fish world, of you could cross the river by walking on the backs of June sucker. Um, It was pretty dramatic. They grow fairly large. When they reach adulthood and start spawning, they're usually about 12 to 15 inches. And then once fully grown, they can reach lengths of 28 to 30 inches long. The adults can be quite heavy, especially the females as they are kind of burdened with eggs that they swim up the river to lay. They can weigh upwards of five, six pounds. They were used as a food source for um, European settlers that came to the Utah Valley, but ended up being listed as endangered in 1986 due to a variety of impacts. One was overuse where so many people had taken them from the river during spawning that it it really had impacted the adult population. Non-native fish that were stocked into Utah Lake to provide for fishermen had some negative impacts. Another really big factor squeezing the June sucker out of existence was construction in the late 1920s by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Dikes were built intended to contain and channelize the Provo River where it approaches and then empties out into Utah Lake. The idea was to drain adjacent wetlands and also capture a lot of water upstream for agricultural irrigation elsewhere. A broad, marshy delta that for millennia had sheltered the June sucker hatch was no more. This lack of water really impacted the spawning run because so many years it would get to June and the river was already going dry because water was being taken for irrigation and and other needs. And so in 1986, it was estimated that there were fewer than a thousand June sucker remaining in Utah Lake. Once the sucker was officially listed as endangered, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources established hatcheries to raise spawn to bolster the population of this species. Melissa Stamp is projects manager for the Utah Reclamation Mitigation and Conservation Commission. We caught up with her one Saturday morning as she was leading a tour of a wetland ecosystem near the lake and river. She quizzes her tour group about what they might know about the overall effectiveness of the hatchery efforts. As recently as 1999, the estimated population was several hundred, is all. And does anyone have a guess how many adult June sucker we noticed coming up the river this spring? 50. 50. Add some more zeros. It was in the thousands. There were more than 6,000 individual June suckers that when they put them in from the hatchery, about 20% of them will have a tag, a passive integrated transponder, pit tag it's called. And then we have these antennas out in various parts of the river that will pick those up. It's kind of like if anyone goes skiing and you go through these little readers that let you get on the lift, 
kind of similar technology. And so 6,000, and that's only 20% of the fish are tagged. And so it's on the order of 30 to 50,000 fish in the population now. The hatcheries are able to raise fish to a size that can survive in the lake. But just like with monarch butterflies, you always have to think about each new generation needing to cycle through. You, you have to think about the babies. For each new generation of larval fish to be successful, you got to have a Goldilocks zone, not too little water and not too much. A few years ago, Michael Mills was involved in efforts to regulate the seasonal fluctuations in river volume. What if the spring and summer snowmelt is too little one year or too much in others? Because of the dikes and the irrigation that we've talked about, sometimes the last miles of the river have been reduced to a trickle. We saw a very positive response from June Sucker to having more water available. Larger spawning runs more larval fish being produced, but these larval fish didn't have any habitat that would support them. The river would just dumped right into Utah Lake, and so all these larval fish coming down the river just kind of being forced out into a lake where there's numerous predators, um, not really a transition zone. And so in 2008, we made the decision that we needed to restore a delta habitat where the Provo River connected to Utah Lake. It would take the commission 12 years to plan, design, and acquire the land needed to put in a new river delta. And it was no small snag that farmers by that point had been using the drained wetlands of the former delta for almost a century. 260 acres of farmland were purchased, then, four broad channels were dug by machines. Think of these as streams braiding their way here and there, bending, turning, crisscrossing each other. These meandering channels were each about 40 feet wide, and they varied in depth from 8 inches to several feet. And shallow ponds were put in next to these channels. That was also part of the plan. There's so many predators in Utah Lake, and what the Delta provides is shallow water with vegetation in it. So a little fish can you know, head into a group of plants to try to hide from a walleye or a white bass that could be trying to eat it. The other conditions that these ponds provide is the water gets a little warmer. I don't know exactly what it is about June sucker, but they seem to do a little bit better when they have a little bit warmer conditions to be able to grow, meaning they grow a little bit faster, probably related to the amount of food that's available to them. And if the Asian carp are also a mortal enemy to young June suckers, it's not because they eat them. The carp just leave them no place to hide. Then other fish can pick them off. There's yet another tool being used to address the carp problem. For the past 15 years, the state of Utah has hired fisheries to get involved using nets up to 600 yards long. Josh Lamont. The state comes out here every year and harvests carp in large numbers just to keep the population down, so much so that I think it's somewhere around the equivalent of 10 blue whales have been extracted from the lake in terms of the Asian carp body mass. That represents a 75% reduction in the carp population. 
The purpose of Melissa Stamp's frequent tours down at the River Delta and Lake is to explain to local citizens what's going on with this Delta restoration and to show the progress that's been made. After the tour, many of the attendees stay on to help her replant the Delta with the vegetation that the June suckers will then take cover in as they grow big enough to head out into open waters. The Delta project is still under construction, slated for completion in 2024. That's when the public will be able to kayak or paddleboard through the Delta. But for now, it's off-limits, except for official tours and volunteers helping out. On the morning that we visited, people of all ages had signed up to help, including this third grader. When I first came here today, I didn't want to go, but now I am actually happy that I'm here. This is like an artificial river, like people built it, I think, and we're just trying to clean up all of the trash and planting some trees and putting the seeds of the plants. It's good for the lake, and then animals can live good here. It's an ambitious project, uh, not widely known really. Several of the volunteers actually stumbled onto the opportunity to come down and see it. Here's one of them, 23-year-old Anna Monson. I was on a walk with my family, and we passed by the Delta, and we're like, oh, I think we're trespassing now, actually. Oops. And I didn't even realize it was here and construction started 2020 i don't live very far away so we were just blown away by how did we not know this existed another regular volunteer at the delta is byu professor ben abbott he studies ecosystem ecology in the environmental science and sustainability program which is to say that a big part of his expertise is the matter of how humans use water So this might be precisely the kind of place for somebody like him to hang out. But a certain group of commercial developers begged to differ and saw him as a meddler. While efforts were underway to restore the Delta, Abbott found himself the target of a big legal battle. Was he or was he not at liberty to speak up about these land developers and their plans? A group who wanted to radically change the entire lake that chapter of our story in just a moment. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. Given that many locals for decades have been wholly unimpressed by Utah Lake, you need to know that someone like Ben Abbott has the perfect temperament to speak up for it. I want to set the lake and its ecosystem aside for just a moment to help you understand what kind of guy he is. Ben Abbott's office on the BYU campus is lush. Not lavish, but lush, as in plants, stacked on nearly every horizontal surface. But if you look closely, most of these plants are not symmetrical. There are some with stems missing, leaves missing. Others have aerial roots snapped off. Awkwardly lopsided plants. Remember that old Rudolph Christmas special featuring the island of misfit toys? Well, Ben Abbott has the office of misfit plants. He began collecting them after a conversation with one of the building managers. Her name was Wendy. She told him how bad she always felt throwing these damaged plants away. That resonated with me. I feel the same way because this is an organism that's trying to survive, and we've put it in a really difficult environment, right? A climate-controlled building. And I actually think that it's a real privilege to be able to see if we just give it space 
and time rather than demanding that it looks perfect all of the time. I mean, think about ourselves. I certainly do yeah, not, not get look, personal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right now, you can probably smell me from across the studio here. Uh, but I don't always have my things together. And if we have this unrealistic expectation of one another and of the beings that we share this planet with, that they always have to be the most charismatic ones, um, those are the only ones worth saving, then we damage our home and we damage ourselves. I've had this thought many times at the end of a long day where I didn't accomplish what I wanted to. I look around and see my plant friends and think, you know what, they grew a little bit today. Ben Abbott grew up in Orem, Utah. That's one of the cities adjacent to Utah Lake. And unlike me, Ben has spent a lot of time in the water there. He describes going there as a teen. I remember at night wading out into the lake, and you can wade out three quarters of a mile and still only be up to your chest. So being immersed in this water, feeling the sediment down below my feet, and then the night herons would start to hunt and fly right over your head. Really extraordinary. And again, as a young person, it was extremely centering and healing for me as I tried to figure out how I fit in. But the lake was as much a friend as my schoolyard companions were. Ben would grow up to study water systems, as I mentioned, and eventually took a job as a professor at BYU in 2017. He ended up the target of that lawsuit after he spoke out publicly against an ambitious project to dredge the lake and use the sediment to create dry, developable real estate. We're talking about a gargantuan undertaking, 18,000 acres of man-made islands. The engines were churning on this idea around the time Ben started teaching. The very first class that I taught was a watershed ecology class, and the students had to find a project that they were interested in, and they coalesced almost immediately around this proposal that had just been made public that fall. There was a group, including some of the developers who'd built the Dubai Islands, the Palm Islands. They wanted to do the same thing here, but 14 times larger than those Dubai Islands, the world's largest artificial island chain. When I heard about that years ago, I thought it was, well, not pie in the sky, but I guess pie in the lake. I just thought it was yeah, impossible. Absolutely. It was really a difficult issue to start engaging on because many people who understood the lake, um, the natural resource managers, the researchers, the people with a personal connection with the lake, they understood that this wasn't a feasible thing. They thought it would just collapse under its own weight. And so people didn't speak out as much as we could have at that time because it felt like, okay, this will just resolve itself. But you, you, you did speak out at some point in a way that miffed the developers? Yeah, the students and I developed a project. We engaged with the developers and actually had a pretty good working relationship with them. Um, in 2017 and 2018, we participated in panels together talking about the risks and potential benefits of the project. They were calling it a restoration project, but restoration, of course, means to go back to a natural state of the ecosystem. This was a radical re-engineering. Right? They wanted to deepen the lake and create 20,000 acres of new land and house a city of up to 500,000 people on the lake. 500, that's a half a million. Half a million people. It's more people than live in Utah Valley today. It would have made this lake city the largest city in Utah, larger than Salt Lake City. So there were real concerns. But we felt like it was a, a really healthy conversation. You know, when we have big decisions to be made, it's so important that we have open and free discourse. 
that every citizen, uh, whether they have a, a background in lake ecology or if they are simply a person that enjoys that ecosystem, has a chance to speak up. And that was going on in 2017, 2018. But unfortunately, the project kind of went into stealth mode, new leadership took over, and in 2021 is when we learned that they were actually pretty far along in their planning and had commitments from uh, multiple people and investors and some people in state government to push this project forward. I followed the story all the way through. I'm just going to, you know, spoiler. It's worse than a spoiler. This is cut into the chase because <laughs> the threat is over. You're no longer threatened or mm -hmm. intimidated because nobody is now threatening or intimidating you. They had to go away. Yeah. So they sued me for my criticisms of their project. Um, they said that I had defamed them and interfered with economic opportunity. Thankfully, there is a free speech law in Utah, an anti-slap statute, that allowed us to respond to that lawsuit and actually recover attorney's fees as well and receive damages. Though the company never paid any of that. They were able to declare bankruptcy before being held accountable. But thankfully, our community came together and we had people from every possible political persuasion that came out. 10,000 signed a petition encouraging the state to uh, be more careful in how they manage Utah Lake and stop this project. And indeed, the project was rejected by the state. When this all finally came to a close, there was a day you decided, I'm, I'm going up a place called Big Baldy to the top of a, a snowy mountain in the yeah. middle of the winter. I followed what you were writing about that. Can you share a little of that day? Yeah. I had never gotten a parking ticket before <laughs> or a speeding ticket. I had zero experience with the legal system. And when this lawsuit was dropped off, it was actually my wife who ended up, she was at home and received this and opened it up and saw, we're suing you for $3 million. It was absolutely terrifying to me and to our family. And... After over a year of battling this and learning the legal system, it all came down, I think it was a Tuesday, when we were going to have the final hearing with the judge, when she was going to rule on the lawsuit. And my friend Greg Carling sent a text message really early that morning and said, hey, do you want to go skiing? And I thought, this is the last day that I want to go skiing. But I also had this feeling of, hey, maybe this is the most important day for me to get a little bit of headspace. And so we left very early in the morning and skinned up a mountain called Big Baldy. And it was snowing really heavily in town when we got to the base of the mountain. So maybe you couldn't see the lake on that day. It was so interesting because as we got higher and higher, it got brighter and brighter. And finally, when we got to the top of the mountain, the clouds did part for a moment. And there was this sense of connection with my home, God's creation, as well as a connection with my creator, where I just really overwhelmed with gratitude and had this absolute assurance that all of us are learning. All of us are imperfect. Um, we're trying to help, but we make mistakes. This is in my hands. That was the sense that I got and really had a feeling of peace. I had this sense of, okay, we'll, we'll see what the judge determines. She had listened to both sides and reviewed all of the documents and evidence that we've put forward. And to hear her then rule that, uh, yes, Dr. Abbott, you are completely in your rights. It is legal and appropriate and even needed for everyone to participate in the public dialogue and then throw out their case against me was, felt like it was a really important step forward. There have been moments where I felt so frustrated and felt like so much of my time was wasted, <laughs> time that I could have spent um, with students. I could have been more present 
for my children, for my wife. There absolutely was a lot and continues to be sometimes um, resentment in this sense of why did this happen to me? <laughs> Not that I'm special in any way, but I was trying to help, right? And instead, I've really had a shift in my perspective. And this came to me there on the mountain and many other times, this sense of why am I here? Am I here simply to do another study and to build my career? Or am I here when the need arises, when somebody does need to speak out, that I can step forward, even if that's inconvenient, even if it comes at a large personal cost? We aren't here just to always be comfortable. I feel very grateful that I was able to play a role in this battle. I feel so grateful for our community that's come together. And I believe, looking to the future, that we are prepared for the next challenge because there certainly will be one. And I think that we're beginning to realize how important our stewardship of our home is. This high-profile lawsuit has been withdrawn, and the development company, Lake Restoration Solutions, LRS, is now defunct. It was a strange chapter in the history of the lake, and taking a little time to mention it here gave us the opportunity to point out the passion that exists in parts of the community for preserving this body of water. Concurrent with a lawsuit and its eventual resolution was the unfolding restoration project at the Provo River Delta. And I think I probably shouldn't leave you with the impression that this project itself was a kumbaya story, not by any means. It required the purchase of hundreds of acres from farmers to recreate the delta. And as I indicated earlier, this reclaimed land had been in farmers' possession for, well, I can safely say, at least three generations. Ben Abbott tells the story of his neighbors, the Robinses. We ended up being their next-door neighbors when we moved to Provo. They are an old-time farming family, and they own a parcel down by Utah Lake. And the very first conversation I had with Marino, the father, he said we were really actually quite upset when the June sucker was listed as an endangered species because we were worried this is going to change where we can graze our cows. We might even have to not plow quite as much of our land to leave this wetland area by the lake. And um, there was a lot of resentment and distrust, right? This felt like uh, the federal government's getting involved. Why would we do this? But over a period of about 25 years, the June Sucker Recovery Implementation Program came together. It brought farmers, water users, cities individual businesses together and implemented this restoration project. And the landowners around the lake started to see the benefits of caring for the lake. The water quality was better. They actually will pump water from Utah Lake to irrigate some of our land. They could do that for a larger portion of the year since it wasn't getting clogged up with algae all the time. And Marino had this real change of heart. Now, he still says he doesn't love the June sucker. Michael Mills of the Utah Reclamation Mitigation and Conservation Commission told us about a key landowner who was essential to the project. Local landowners have been very skeptical. The main landowner we purchased the land from, I don't think he would mind me sharing his name, Dale to Spain, he had placed his farm in a conservation easement. So he had already sold the development rights to it and was just basically grazing cattle out in a wetland. And he really enjoyed that. He loved that lifestyle. But, you know, after 
several years of, of working with him. He agreed to sell a portion of his land that we're now using for the project. And he was a great steward of that land and continues to be a neighbor for us down there. At times, he hasn't been fully on board, and but he's one of our closest onlookers, um, maybe even cheering us on a little bit. He, he provides a lot of feedback, and we interact with him all the time. Uh, what made him change his mind? It came down to him knowing that the land wasn't going to become apartments or storage units or or anything like that, that it was a little bit of a legacy for him because he had preserved it for decades under that conservation easement. And our project wasn't going to be a huge change on the landscape. And then we were also able to purchase land that was adjacent to his from one of his neighbors. We did a land exchange where he ended up not having to give up a ton of acreage. Um, he was almost made whole when the project was complete. I'm actually familiar with the Despain family, and I asked Dale if he had any appetite to share a few remarks on tape. He graciously declined, but spoke with me at length. And I came away loving the guy. He models a healthy view that not everything is clear-cut in life. Wisdom of age helps him avoid seeing black and white. When it comes to the land we've been talking about at the margins of the lake, much of which he once owned, Dale weighs all the pluses, all the minuses, not just with moderation and civility, but I think with a genuine effort to understand every facet of the public discussion. With the Delta Project nearing completion, we invited Michael Mills to disclose a little of where his heart is, Obviously, he's proud of this undertaking. After all, he's been working on projects involving the Provo River for at least 15 years. So what is his favorite place to visit along this river? It's a little bit ironic. So on the eastern edge of our project, there was the need to build a road in order to move people north and south through the valley. And actually, the best place for me is I love to go and stand on that road on the bridge that goes over the Provo River and then just look out to the northwest and you can see this new river channel that we built that's full of water and it goes down and hits this point at the start of the delta and just starts to fan out into different channels. There's ponds and if you get down there in the morning, the sun comes up behind you and kind of lights the whole area up. There's birds flying over. You can imagine fish out there. And our vegetation still has a ways to go, so it, it's not the lush area it's going to be, but it's, it's a great view to see the river leading to the delta and then Utah Lake beyond it and that important transition area that the delta provides. It is by far my favorite to just stand on that bridge and, and look out over the delta. Geologist Josh Lamont pointed out to me as we were just returning from that boat trip out on the lake that there's a reciprocal relationship, especially with a lake that suffers from a bad reputation. So we're sitting in the marina here at Utah Lake State Park. There are several boats that are launching right now. And we don't see that enough. We just don't see people out on the lake. And so the more people 
are on the lake and using the lake, the more people will appreciate the lake. And they have that opportunity for wonder. Even if you're out there wakeboarding, you know, after you fall in, you're in the water for a few seconds by yourself in the quiet and you can experience that. So I think the biggest thing for me is just to see people get away from this idea that the lake is dirty and it's not worth anything and change that into an understanding of how unique the lake is and how lucky we are to have it. My name is Henry Jones. I come here every month to volunteer. I think one time we volunteered, we were planting trees along the shoreline. We were mentioning how when it's finished, when it's all grown up, how we can look back and say, hey, that was us. So the Provo River Delta restoration is a great success story. I mean, it's not even complete yet, right? Um, But it's this great project that the Department of Interior and others have come together and tried to restore it back to the natural system that it was. And what's driving it, right, are those endemic fish, those fish that only occur here, the June sucker. And it's not just benefiting that fish, right? It benefits the ecosystem as a whole. And that includes us, right, as the people surrounding it. Our guests in this episode have been Josh Lamont, a geology professor at BYU, Ben Abbott, a BYU professor of plant and wildlife sciences. From the Utah Reclamation Mitigation and Conservation Commission, we heard from Michael Mills and Melissa Stamp, and from volunteers who felt drawn to this restoration project. If you've got a story from your neck of the woods or your end of the lake about awe, hope, or restoration, we'd love to hear about it. Email us. Our email address is constantwonder at byu.edu. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Audrey Hughes, Brian Barba, and Mamie Teeples. Sound design by Dallin Jepson and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. With this episode, we've arrived at the end of Season 5 of Constant Wonder. But rest assured that Season 6 isn't far off. We're already working hard on it. Season 6 launches September 20th. If you enjoy what we bring you, please leave us a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, share a review. It helps spread the word and share the wonder. We'll meet you back here September 20th 